Thank you for that reading, Lizzie. Can I ask you to please keep your Bibles open? I will have most of the verses on screen, but we'll jump around the passage a bit, so you might want to refer to the Bibles as well. Can I lead us in prayer? Join with me as we come to God now. Father, we come to you today on this Father's Day, thanking you that you are our great Heavenly Father. And Lord, as our Father and you loving your children, we thank you that a way you do that is by giving us your word and your truth. And we thank you that you grow us and love us and nurture us, change us, convict us, do all of these great things through what you reveal. And we ask that by your Spirit you will do that now as we keep exploring Exodus together. And so we commit this particular time of our our service and our time in Exodus into your hands. In Jesus' great name, amen. I wonder what you think when you hear the word glory, because we use it in lots of different ways. We can go outside to find the sun shining, have one of those days where it's not too hot, not too cold, and so we say that it's a glorious day. And if we do, we sort of mean, well, glory, well, it means pleasant, doesn't it? Uh, We also use the word glory in a military or a battle sense. So listen to these titles from books and movies and music and video game kind of things. Blaze of glory, battle for glory, and they died for glory. You know, it almost makes you want to get into the fight, doesn't it? It's another way we use glory. And then, of course, the word glory is used in the sporting world. So to get a gold medal is to achieve glory, isn't it? That's the language that they use. I found myself on the official Olympic Games website years ago. This was after the uh, Vancouver Games. And I found an ad, and it said, uh, Olympic glory, yours to own. But when you click on it, they're making extra cash by selling worn Olympic jerseys and used hockey pucks. I think they might have got glory a bit confused in that one. Uh, But it goes to show, doesn't it, that we understand glory in different ways. It can mean anything from good to grace. But what does glory mean when we see it in the Bible? That word, it's all over today's passage. Why does God say that he wants to gain glory? Well, it's because he means it in a much bigger sense. Let's think about where we are in the story of Exodus. Remember, it started off with the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. And God then revealed himself to Moses, and he raised him up to lead the people to freedom. That led to this big battle between God and Pharaoh, sort of between God and the gods of Egypt. And it showed Pharaoh's stubborn heart and God's mighty power through the many plagues. Then last week, we looked at God's final plague of killing the Egyptian firstborn and saving his people. And so Pharaoh, he finally gave in and decided to let the people go. Today we come to the actual exodus itself, the the big rescue, the leading of the people out of Egypt and into freedom. And God says that in the way that he acts here, he will gain glory. He'll be seen as the greatest. He will receive the honor that is due to him. People will know for sure that he is the gracious and saving and mighty Lord. 
And so our question then as we look at these chapters is, well, how does God show himself as truly glorious here? How, does he, how do we see his glory in the Exodus? Well, one place that we see that is in how God acts despite the attitude of the Israelites. God acts in a certain way, and that's despite what's going on with the people. So look with me, please, at chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, If they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. This was the beginning of their journey of freedom. But look at what God does. While there was a quicker exit, he took them in a different direction. See, he knew their heart. The shorter way would take them through the land of another enemy. And if they were threatened, they might get scared and run back to Egypt. They might want to abort this whole rescue mission. And so God led them himself another way, through a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. In verse 22, we're told that this pillar, it never left its place in front of the people. So despite the Israelites' uh, fickleness and their changeable hearts, God was constantly caring for them. God's attitude towards them was not based on their attitudes towards him. Then we come to chapter 14, verse 8, where we get another mini snapshot. We see there, it says that the Israelites were marching out boldly. Now this literally means with an upraised hand, you know, almost as if they're carrying weapons defiantly. They're traveling with confidence. The question is, what kind of confidence? Is it a trust in God because of how they've seen him act powerfully in Egypt? Or is it a smug self-confidence? I personally wonder if it's a little bit of both. When it comes to babies, one thing that they have in common is the ability to change from one mood to another in literally seconds. So I have this, these series of pictures uh, taken back when uh, Anouk, my oldest, back when she was only about seven weeks old. It's just this series of pictures that shows this very well. Uh, all of these were taken literally within a two-minute window. That's not an exaggeration. Some are a little blurry, but with babies, you have to capture the moment, don't you? But here we go. A little bit upset. A lot more upset. Everything seems to be a bit all right now. Okay, now it's screaming time, a bit of volume, and life is perfect. Okay? Here in Exodus, we've got that same thing happening. Maybe not on a two-minute window, but in a relatively short amount of time, we see a change of character. Have a look at verses 10 to 12 with me, please. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't uh, we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. 
Now that's a little bit of a change from marching out boldly, isn't it? But still, let's not downplay what's happening for these people. They thought they were home free. All of a sudden, they see the most powerful nation in the world at that time coming towards them. This would have been terrifying for them, absolutely terrifying. Fear is a natural reaction. But on the other hand, there's something wrong as well. Think about what they say a little bit more closely. In their panic, they really only list two options, don't they? Serving the Egyptians or dying in the desert. Do you see what's missing? There's no mention of God. Yes, we can understand their fear, and rightfully so. But as one preacher has said, shouldn't they also be asking God now for an 11th plague? For him to step in again? I mean, they have seen God in action. They have seen him smack down the Egyptians with plague after plague. God has shown them that Pharaoh is no match. They've just marched out with God leading in a cloud of fire and, and, and cl- uh, sorry, a pillar of cloud and fire. The most logical reaction should have been Moses were terrified. Can you ask God to do something? But they've sort of forgotten God already despite everything that he has done. Sadly, this is a sinful condition of the human heart. And if you think maybe I'm being a little bit too harsh on the Israelites, well, this is how they describe themselves. In Psalm 106, as they reflect as a people back on this very scene by the Red Sea, they say that they were sinful. See, we can so easily turn our focus in on ourselves and and find it very hard sometimes to hand things over to God. We can just forget a bit too easily that God remembers, that God is faithful. So when we're waiting for those medical results... Yes, we trust in the wisdom of our doctors, and we might be appropriately anxious, but we must not forget that God is in the picture too. When our job is threatened, yes, we make sure that we work hard and do the right things, but God has not forgotten us. When final exams bring stress, when children disappoint, when marriages are strained, when depression rears its ugly head, in these times we can sometimes collapse in on ourselves as if us or other people are the only players. We can think it's dying in the desert or serving Pharaoh. But as Christians who are secure in Jesus, we can also know with confidence that God will never forget us. Even when our hearts waver, he won't forget us. Even when we forget him. Friends, this is what I have found personally helpful in times like this. We can look back on God's past mercies to remember who he is and how he acts. That's what the Israelites should have done. The God who brought the plagues, the God who took them out of Egypt, he was still there with them in their time of need. I'm personally finding this approach very helpful as I face a time of uh, big change right now with me soon wrapping up my role here at Epping. Myself and my family, we are stepping into something different. But what God has been placing on my heart is how he has worked in my life, how he brought me to himself, 
how he led me to Australia, called me here with little more than a conviction to, to go to Bible college. I had no idea what was in store. And I look at how he has provided and equipped and blessed me in so many ways over so many years. I look back on God's faithfulness and I know that he has not forgotten me. I know that he has not forgotten this church. In this time of change, we can be confident that the God who loved us in the past, he still loves us now and he will not turn off that love. He is faithful. God remembers. Where have you seen God act in your life? Let that shape your way forward. Don't leave God out of the picture. But see, God is glorious in this. See, only God can act in this way. He keeps his mighty hand of grace on these Israelites who have even forgotten to look at him. God is bigger and absolute in his faithfulness. He deserves the honor that's due to him. So that's one way that we see God's glory here. The way that he acts despite what's happening with the people. But we see it in another way too. We see it in how he leaves no doubt that the victory is from his hands. We see God's gloriousness in his, in his victory. We see this in God's military strategy. That's one way. So look with me please at chapter 14 verses 2 to 4. Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zaphon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the desert in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. God gets the Israelites to head in another direction they eventually end up by the sea with nowhere else to go. So from Pharaoh's point of view, they are trapped. He's going to go after them. And the Israelite point of view is that they are sitting ducks and there's no escape. These are impossible odds. But they're not impossible for God. He has a strategy. And so when salvation comes, there will be no doubt that God is the one who has done this. God is the one who has won the victory. Another way that it's made clear that, that God is a, the winner here he is through the helplessness of the people. When they cried out in terror, uh, Moses used this sort of language. He said, don't be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the Lord's total deliverance. He will fight for you. You don't have to say or do anything. See, Moses places all of the focus on God. God is a victorious one here. And then when we come to verses 19 and following, we again see the unmistakable hand of the Lord. God protects the people through an angel and a pillar of cloud. We see his supernatural uh, work here, bringing darkness to the enemy and light to the Israelites. The very presence of God brought comfort and safety and direction. As we read these chapters, we cannot miss the fact that God is the one who's doing everything here. He is in total control. There are no surprises for him. And friends, in our lives, even when we face the most impossible odds, God is still in control. When we literally have nowhere else to turn, God is the one who already has a plan. In fact, our weaknesses only reveal his strength. I love how the Apostle Paul uh, puts this in 
uh, 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's take great hope that our weaknesses and the things that we face, they are never bigger than God. Just like the Israelites were called to do, we can be still and silent, knowing that the Lord is fighting for us. Here we see his glory in his gracious victory. God is the victorious one here. And finally, we see that God gains glory through the miraculous way that he defeats the Egyptians. Through the miraculous way that he defeats them. And this, of course, is the well-known part of our, our passage tonight, the well-known story of the Red Sea being parted by Moses. But, you know, despite many of us being very familiar with that scene, let's not miss the details. God tells Moses to stretch out his hand, and then it says in verses 21 and 22 that all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Think about it like this. Here are a couple of pictures of the aftermath of a gigantic snowstorm in Newfoundland, where I come from. Okay, so here's the first one. They're actually digging out the road there. And then here they are driving through the road. That's an abnormal winter, by the way. It's not like that every winter where I come from. Uh, but it's pretty crazy, isn't it? That kind of snow, that amount of it. Now imagine you're in that car driving through. Imagine then if those banks of snow or walls of water. If you were an Israelite or an Egyptian going between those walls, would you be thinking that it's a natural phenomenon? I sincerely hope not. Okay? <laughs> this is nothing less than a miracle. Only the Creator can move the seas. And that's made very clear as well, uh, the, God's miraculous way of intervening here. It says that the Lord looked down from the pillar. He threw the Egyptians into confusion. He broke their chariots. The Egyptians probably thought they were unstoppable. They had these 600 special high-tech chariots at the time, probably the equivalent of an army today with the latest technology in fighter jets or something like that. But the Egyptians realized too late. It's almost tragic the way they called out, God is fighting for them, after they went into the sea. I mean, shouldn't they have figured that out by now? Back with the plagues, or uh, you know, when they saw the pillar of cloud or fire, or even when they saw the waters piled up to either side. But then again, we're told that God had hardened them. See, this was his final judgment. The Egyptians would no longer be a threat. And God, in his miraculous power, he just simply made the waters flow back in on them. And he snapped the most powerful nation like a twig. God is glorious through his miraculous victory. Friends, as I've said, no matter how big your enemy is, 
or how big your hardships are, God is bigger. Take comfort in that. Be hopeful in him. Bring them down to size, knowing that God is fighting for you. And when your odds look impossible, remember that God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine. And this is where we see his glory. This is what's happening in Exodus. God takes a group of whining, undeserving people, people ready to jump ship as soon as things get tough, and he frees them from slavery. He simply chooses them and loves them. When they quickly forget him and his past blessings, he still chooses to put his arm around them and care for them and guide them and protect them. He keeps his promises and he stays faithful even when the Israelites, they wander, they waver in their hearts. And even in saving them from a horrible enemy, he judges and he defeats the most powerful nation of the time in a miraculous and mind-blowing way. And so God gets the reaction that he deserves. He gains glory. Our final verse says, And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And friends, that's how we are called to respond as well. Ephesians 1 reminds us uh, that our salvation in Jesus, our exodus in a sense, it's for his glory too. So I'd like to finish by reading a few verses from that passage. This is Ephesians 1. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pray to our glorious God now. Father, we do thank you for this passage in Exodus. And while it's a well-known story to many of us here, we thank you for how you reveal yourself. And Lord, we praise you that you showed your glory in how you acted even with the people's attitude of, of wavering and wandering. And we know that you are like this now, Lord, that you are faithful even when we wander in our hearts. Lord, we see your glory here and how you are absolutely victorious, and we know that you hold that same power now in our lives, in our relationships, in this world, in this church, in its ministries. And Lord, we see your glory in the, the miraculous work that only you could do. And Lord, we know that you still act in the most amazing ways. Lord, give us eyes to see your glory, but not only to know that, but to know you then as the God who, as you pour out this glory, it comes with saving grace, with a loving hand, with leading us and guiding us and protecting us and making us new. And so we praise you that you are glorious. In Jesus' name we say this.